Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. All right, good morning. Thank you, Alex, for that introduction. Uh, so yes, uh, this is, you'll be seeing um, progressive footsteps of, uh, sta and standing on the shoulders of giants here uh, with myself uh, on Dr. Okiki's shoulders and, and both of us on Dr. Smith's shoulders. Um, so today we'd like to discuss uh, our experience in endoscopic management on upper tract urothelial carcinoma. So unfortunately, I have no disclosures. Um, so this is a very rare disease, although we see a disproportionate share of it. Um, it's only uh, one to two every 100,000 folks, um, and it's uh, significantly less common than uh, the lower tract urothelial carcinomas. However, 60% um, of individuals present with invasive disease at uh, a presentation, and you, you contrast that with uh, bladder, which is more like 15 to 20%. Um, it does present at an older age also compared to bladder, the, uh, folks in their eighth and ninth decades of life. Uh, it's, uh, as I said, only 5 to 10% of urothelial carcinomas involve the upper tract. However, two-thirds of those involve the uh, upper collecting system, meaning the renal pelvis and the calyces, and only about a third of it is within the ureter. So the gold standard treatment for upper tract urothelial carcinoma has always been radical nephroureterectomy with a bladder cuff. However, this is not an insignificant procedure, um, especially in a higher-risk comorbid population and can significantly reduce renal function, especially in our elderly patients. And, uh, you know, from a uh, high-end cancer perspective, this will uh, potentially limit eligibility for future platinum-based first-line chemotherapy agents. Endoscopic resection um, has historically been reserved for uh, low-risk individuals, meaning small tumors less than a centimeter, low-grade, and unifocal tumors, uh, or those with uh, imperative indications. Uh, just as the, to show the consequences on renal function with uh, NAFU, uh, studies have shown that individuals who undergo NAFU can see a significant drop in their GFR uh, below 60, which um, may be a cutoff for some chemotherapy uh, regimens if they were need uh, 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 adjuvant therapy, um, with a median decline of GFR about 18%. Uh, one study has shown that 72% uh, of those who uh, became ineligible after uh, their nephroureterectomy did have a preoperative GFR above 60, and they were more likely to re receive second-line chemotherapy agents, which probably aren't as efficacious. I think the um, PALT trial recently showed some, some evidence of that. And it uh, disproportionately affects uh, those over uh, the age of 70, which again is our uh, patient population that we're dealing with. So I'm going to focus on uh, indications for endoscopic resection today, um, risk stratification of patients based on uh, most of the European guidelines, uh, diagnostic limitations that we run into, and, uh, and then oncologic outcomes uh, of endoscopic resection relative to um, the gold standard of nephroureterectomy. And then Dr. Okiki is going to speak more uh, in-depthly about advanced diagnostics, management strategies, uh, intraluminal therapies, and future directions. So really indications for nephron sparing, kidney sparing surgery in patients with upper tract urothelial carcinoma. 
Now these fall into two categories. Uh, the first one being imperative indications. Uh, so individuals with a solitary kidney, and I have solitary in quotes there because they can be surgically solitary, congenital absence of one kidney, or um, you know, functionally solitary. Uh, those with substantial renal insufficiency at baseline, um, folks with bilateral uh, urothelial carcinoma, again, rare, but uh, not unseen, and uh, individuals who are surgically, uh, have significant surgical comorbidities that would preclude them from undergoing the gold standard of radical nephroureterectomy when uh, that may be the better option. And for these folks, they're essentially deciding between dialysis and death if they were undergoing radical nephroureterectomy. For more elective indications, Again, low-risk disease, uh, highly selected individuals with uh, higher-risk uh, features, and the features that uh, I'll dip my toe into in considering uh, endoscopic management are multifocal disease or folks with larger tumors. However, uh, I, I try to stick with the lower-grade um, or very small high-grade uh, individuals, especially with superficial features. Um, and then what's really important is that they are follow-up compliant. So with risk stratification, how do we define low risk and high risk? Low risk is, again, a small tumor, uh, unifocal. This is where I feel that there's most wiggle room in the, in the guidelines, because depending on your comfort expertise with endoscopic management percutaneous resection, you can tend to push the envelope a little bit more here. Uh, low, low grade on biopsy, and we'll discuss the importance of grade with risk stratifying these folks. No invasive features on imaging. Again, if there's uh, evidence of invasion, uh, endoscopic management or resection is not going to work in these folks, and they're best served with uh, uh, extra surgery. And then close follow-up. Again, these folks need to uh, engage in a contract with you that they are willing to undergo frequent uh, surveillance of the upper tract. And uh, imaging, cross-section imaging is limited in this, and we uh, really do rely on endoscopic surveillance. So. They have to be willing to go back to the OR every three to six months for the first few years. High-risk features, again, high-grade disease highly correlates with more invasive features on final pathology. Hydronephrosis has been shown to be an independent risk factor for invasion. Um, and it's uh, not just bulky disease that obstructs the ureter, but uh, infiltrative disease that stenosis the ureter uh, is more likely to be uh, 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 invasive and, uh, and uh, higher risk down the line. Um, one of the most challenging cases that I run into is these uh, folks with multiple rapid recurrences, meaning you go and you do your best to uh, vaporize uh, any tumors that you see, and you come back three months later and it's as if nothing had happened. They come back or they, they it recurs more distal in the ureter and then in a different calyx and uh, just bouncing around. This is, this is more of an indication of their panurothelial disease or uh, those who demonstrate significant bladder recurrences or congenital recurrences. Smoking is an independent risk factor, as well as uh, history of bladder cancer. And sometimes we uh, lose the forest for the trees where um, referring urologic oncologists to me focus on the low-grade tumor that recurs in their upper pole calyx. However, they continue to have recurrent BCG refractory CIS, which is really what's going to get them in the end. So, one of the biggest challenges that we face is our uh, limitations in biopsy. Uh, you know, unlike a TURBT where we can get a nice full thickness resection of, of a bladder and uh, demonstrate good staging uh, quality tissue to the pathologist, um, we are limit, uh, limited due to the miniaturization of our instruments. 
So there are three general categories of biopsy instruments that we utilize. Uh, most commonly is the three French cold cup, often referred to as a piranha. I think that's Boston Scientific. Um, there is the bigopsy made by Cook, which is a six French back-loaded biopsy forcep. And then uh, a regular old zero-tip nitinol basket, which we're very familiar with for stone basketing. Um, these have been extensively studied again, and, and the, the right image shows the quality of tissue that you receive from a three French cold cup biopsy. It's very small. I always find it very challenging to even get it out of the cup and really not presenting the pathologist with much tissue to analyze. I remember at Columbia, uh, Jeff Newhouse, one of our radiologists, used to joke that radiologists are treated like mushrooms. We keep them in the dark and feed them shit and expect them to have a uh, good diagnosis based on imaging. Similar with the pathologist, you want to give them a good tissue specimen. So Alberta Bredo recently uh, looked at uh, the qualities of uh, the biopsy that is uh, obtained from these instruments. And he noted that the three French cold cup really does not provide adequate uh, tissue for um, analysis. For sessile flat lesions, the bigopsy uh, provides better depth. And ultimately for um, more papillary polypoid tumors, uh, debulking with a uh, zero tip nitinol basket is the way to go. And this is my practice mm -hmm. as well. So uh, Tamri Yamini was a medical student at Columbia and he did uh, a study with uh, Mantu Gupta when he was there. And they looked at uh, correlation between endoscopic biopsy and final pathology on uh, nephroureterectomy, and they were able to accurately grade tumors 82% of the time. For those that faltered, um, the 17% of the total group became upgraded, so you're more likely to downgrade on initial endoscopic biopsy. However, they were significantly understaged. More than half of the folks uh, biopsied had uh, deeper uh, penetration of tumor on the final nephroureterectomy specimen. So that really goes that we goes to show that we can't rely on the stage that we're obtaining on endoscopic biopsy. 67% of those with high grade biopsy, meaning the grade, will have invasive higher stage tumor at uh, nephroureterectomy. As such, we are highly dependent on tumor grade for staging our folks, our patients, and uh, assigning risk stratification to them. So what are the oncologic outcomes of these patients? And so again, uh, as mentioned before, we're going to compare the outcomes of patients who undergo endoscopic resection versus the gold standard of radical nephroureterectomy. There have been several studies throughout the years that have looked at this, and these were all nicely compiled in a meta-analysis uh, by Repair from France, looking at cancer-specific survival when they pulled the data on the studies that that examined this individually, they found no statistically significant difference in overall cancer-specific survival uh, between the groups that went, uh, the patients that underwent endoscopic resection of a urothelial carcinoma of trigurothelial versus radical nephroureterectomy. Um, there was also no difference in overall survival between these patients either. Again, retrospective, highly heterogeneous group um, and uh, selected individuals were compared. And they went and looked at uh, subcategorization based on grade. There was no difference in cancer-specific survival uh, between the low-grade patients or the high-grade patients. However, the higher-grade patients who underwent endoscopic resection had a lower overall survival uh, when managed endoscopically. So again, showing that 
raid is a uh, big driver of overall survival and should be considered in your risk uh, assessment of who should be un, uh, who's, who's eligible for endoscopic management versus those who you should punt back for uh, nephrourectomy. Um, looking at recurrence-free survival, uh, local recurrence occurred obviously more frequently in the endoscopic group. And this is a little bit of an apples and oranges comparison because uh, local recurrence within a spared kidney is a lot different than a local recurrence uh, in a retroperitoneal bed where uh, a nephrouterectomy occurred. However, interestingly, I was expecting to see um, significantly more bladder recurrences in the endoscopic group uh, due to drop met uh, metastases from an existing tumor in the kidney that you left behind or recurred. However, there was no difference in the bladder recurrences. Uh, the, the similar group just updated this data uh, a few years after the original paper I just presented, looking at oncologic outcomes. And um, I didn't go into depth in this one because there was a little, they, they had included uh, distal ureterectomy as a, a form of nephron sparing surgery and that uh, and I don't consider that endoscopic management that is uh, radical excision of a portion of the, um, the organ. However, when they looked at the endoscopic group exclusively, meaning those who had undergone ureteroscopy and percutaneous resection uh, versus those who underwent radical nephrouterectomy, they had similar oncologic outcomes uh, in the low-grade group, again, those with non-invasive features and low-grade uh, uh, low grade disease um, with regards to cancer-specific survival and overall survival of five and 10 years. However, um, when looking at the high-grade uh, patients, uh, ureterectomy conferred a similar uh, survival to radical nephrouterectomy. However, um, endoscopic management did not. There was poorer outcomes in those folks. So um, what, how often are the kidneys spared? So several studies have looked at um, nephron sparing rates for patients who underwent endoscopic management for comparative indications. And uh, when uh, compiled, when we, when we looked at this, we found that 80% of kidneys, which would have ultimately been removed, were spared at an average of 55 months. So in conclusion on my section of this talk, proper pa uh, patient selection is key. Uh, you want low-grade individuals, no invasion, uh, on, on uh, cross-sectional imaging, uh, those who are surgically manageable, and this really goes to your comfort level and expertise. Uh, one centimeter is a pretty small tumor, and we are handling much larger tumors uh, with percutaneous resection, um, and in some cases, staged ureteroscopy, but it really depends on your comfort level. And the patient needs to be willing to undergo uh, uh, follow-up um, with repeated endoscopic evaluations. And this needs to be con uh, taken into consideration when uh, considering the anesthesia risks of a uh, comorbid patient who they're pushing away from radical nephrouterectomy. Um, sometimes one uh, major procedure is less, uh, takes less of a toll than on repeated uh, minor endoscopic procedures um, on that patient. And then your imperative individuals who really don't have another choice, solitary kidney, uh, multiple occurrences, bilateral disease. Um, it's, uh, you, ha you have to really appreciate the diagnostic limitations when doing biopsy, uh, and, and that's why GRADE is such a good 
the, the best indicator we have and really can't rely on a, a non-invasive or, or no, no deeper levels noted on pathology as saying that's non-invasive. Um, using a bigger cup or a, uh, a basket will yield better tissue. And um, for properly selected patients, we have comparable outcomes to radical nephroeuterectomy uh, and a very high rate of uh, sparing kidneys. So I'm going to turn over now to uh, Seth so he can continue. All right. Uh, Dr. Kiki, let me uh, give you um, host access just okay. a minute. And if anybody has questions, they want to put it in the chat. Um, I can respond to them while Dr. Okiki speaks. Great. Thanks, guys. Okay. Uh, Dr. Kiki, you should be all set. Okay. All right. Let's... All right. Can everyone see my slide? Yes, sir. Okay. Very good. And you can hear me just fine? Coming through loud and clear. All right. Good. So um, that was a great uh, talk by Dr. Motomedina. So I'm going to take over from here and highlight some important issues when it comes to endoscopic management. Uh, so I have no disclosures. Um, so when it comes to uh, upper tract urothelial cancer and the endoscopic management, um, there are really a lot of things to take into consideration. Uh, Dr. Multimedia talked about the diagnosis, um, and I'm going to touch on that a little bit more. I'll talk about the challenges that come with uh, treating these kinds of patients, uh, both the comorbidities they bring to the table as well as the challenges with the surgery itself. Uh, we'll talk about adjuvant treatments and post-treatment surveillance and uh, long-term outcomes, uh, Dr. Multimedia has really touched on, uh, but I will talk about chronic kidney disease and how that uh, plays a role in this uh, disease. So when it comes to diagnosis, you know, really things we consider we need to think about is how easy it is. It's not very easy, how accurate. Again, that varies depending on the tools that you use. Um, uh, ultimately, it's a combination of, um, let's see, there we go, uh, imaging studies, um, and urine studies, ureteroscopy with biopsy, with or without biopsy and resection. And uh, ultimately for certain patients who are candidates, uh, percutaneous resection uh, combined with ureteroscopy tends to be the solution. Um, now, so this journey usually starts with um, some kind of uh, grossing material, microscopic material, which then leads to imaging such as uh, most commonly CT urogram. And that suggests a filling defect. Uh, the question is then, um, how do we confirm this? Ultimately, uh, the CT urogram is, urogram is suggestive, but not confirmatory of the presence of, uh, uh, of a malignant lesion. So really, what role does ureteroscopy play? Are there any other imaging that we can obtain to um, increase our assurance that this is something malignant or benign? And uh, are there ways to enhance the vision that we have with our ureteroscopes and cystoscopes in general? Now, going into it, uh, we need to think about differential diagnoses, which can uh, really fool you when it comes to imaging. Uh, so papillary necrosis is one common thing. Uh, polyps in any location in the urinary tract can be confused with uh, papillary tumors. Um, in looking in, you need to consider the um, multifocality of the uh, tumor itself. It's not uncommon to uh, see one large lesion and then be distracted and thinking that's all you have, you really need to inspect the entire collecting system from top to bottom. 
um, particularly the lower KLCs where, as you know, the urine tends to rest and uh, those uh, tumors in those locations can be very easy to miss and quite honestly, very easy, uh, very difficult to reach with uh, endoscopes, no matter how good your endoscopes are. Uh, we know um, from, uh, uh, from uh, bladder data and really historic data that uh, cytology is really very limited, particularly low-grade cytologies tend to be negative and know there's presence of tumor in there. And uh, um, negative cytology does not necessarily mean that there's not something malignant present uh, in the collection system. Uh, your detection rate with a combination of uh, cytology and cystoscopy uh, is variable. Uh, the issue with imaging is that really um, any combination of imaging, including a CT scan, MR urography, IVP, retrograde polygram, really doesn't add much more to the equation other than confirming that, yes, there is a lesion there. Um, um, smaller lesions tend to be much more difficult to, uh, to deal with and uh, to really confirm, uh, even though there's... Um, uh, microscopic material or cytology that's uh, telling you there's something there. Um, a small lesion can be uh, very tough to, defect, uh, to detect. Um, I don't know how well my screen projects, uh, but if you alter the uh, window on the imaging that you obtain, particular CT urograms, uh, often you can see a small lesion, uh, sorry, uh, that you would miss on, uh, on the normal window. Uh, so those are ways you can enhance uh, the quality of your imaging. But ultimately, no matter what modality you have as far as imaging, uh, that really doesn't um, increase your diagnostic yield necessarily. So what that means is you have to look in. And how do you look in? You look in with a uroscope. Now, when you're looking in, it's important to consider the quality of your instruments and how good your vision is. And uh, Dr. Multimedina talked about the quality of the biopsies and the instruments used for biopsy. Um, Homium lasers, thulium lasers, whatever modality you use to treat the uh, lesion and ablate the lesion are important to think about. And adjuvant installations uh, that can be performed at the time of um, diagnose, diagnosis and treatment are important. And of course, we need to consider uh, surveillance. Uh, so, um, sorry, there we go. So the, um, the most centers across really the United States have really switched to uh, digital flexible uroscopes. And you can see uh, the image on the left is a typical um, um, fiber optic scope, uh, which has a lot of pixelation. The image is not quite as bright and clear and distinct compared to the digital scopes, which you see on the right of the screen, middle and right of the screen. So the quality of your instrument is really, uh, the scope itself really matters. The technology is important. And you can see this really helps you distinguish between a fungating renal cell carcinoma versus, versus a urothelial cancer, which you can see on the very right of the screen. Uh, so again, uh, digital scopes superior to fiber optic scopes when it comes to visualization. So now there are many different technologies. Um, I don't favor one in particular. There are many different technologies uh, by the different manufacturers that help enhance uh, the image that you see on your screen. So um, this photodynamic diagnosis, is a, you can use that as a general term. And uh, what that does is it highlights a lesion that otherwise on white light microscopy, sorry, white light cystoscopy, uridoscopy, uh, you don't appreciate the lesion. Uh, but if you switch to the enhanced view, uh, you get a much better view of uh, the lesion. 
And uh, likewise, um, when you see uh, something like this on the top left corner, uh, we, it looks rather suspicious uh, versus the middle of the screen, top of the middle of the screen. Uh, how do you distinguish on white light? Uh, you really can't tell the difference between one of these two, whether or not it's uh, malignant or benign. Uh, but with the enhanced uh, visualization, uh, there's a frog's egg effect that you see with malignant tumors, which is pretty diagnostic when it comes to malignant tumors. So uh, the video on the top right, um, if you're looking at it, uh, when you turn on the enhanced view, you can see this really just benign irritation as opposed to a tumor, which on white light, looking at it, uh, looks rather suspicious. So uh, any number of these modalities that you use uh, really help enhance your uh, your vision. Uh, there's a, uh, Dr. Traxer published in 2011, a 22, sorry, 23% increase in the detection rate uh, using these enhanced modalities. And uh, another uh, multi-center group reported, uh, was supposed to report at the AUA this year uh, on um, blue light cystoscopy. And in their study, they found roughly about 25% increase in the detection rate. Uh, when it comes to uh, the enhanced visualization offered by that technology. And there are many examples, uh, videos you can see where uh, there's enhanced and unenhanced uh, views, which really give you not only, uh, uh, so not only enhance your ability to detect the tumor, but also gives you a good idea of the extent of the tumor, which on white light, if you look at an example, is the top right uh, video where you're not really sure what, where the borders of this tumor are, but if on the enhanced view, you can really see very clearly uh, that it's much more extensive than the white light would suggest. Uh, so those are, the, those are the advantages of using uh, the enhanced view uh, for this. As I mentioned, there are many um, different uh, modalities that you can use. It really doesn't matter ultimately whichever technology you use, potentially 25% increase in your diagnostic yield. Um, I'm going to skip uh, the biopsy data. I think uh, Dr. Motomidina really covered that very, uh, very well, very thoroughly. The issue comes up uh, as to whether or not doing these biopsies and the resections and ablations, whether or not they increase your risk of um, local recurrence. And ultimately, um, Dr. Bagley had uh, presented on this, uh, sort of published on this in 1994, really didn't show any. Uh, increase in local recurrence rates when treated when patients are treated endoscopically. Uh, so typically, our approach to these patients um, starts often with ureteroscopy. Uh, if they haven't had one uh, to confirm the presence of the tumor, we would do that ourselves before we uh, do any kind of percutaneous access. And the purpose of this is really to number one determine the extent of the tumor. And uh, number two, it helps guide us in terms of what the best KLCs are to access um, this tumor if we're doing it percutaneously. And if it's resectable, uteroscopically, we do that. Uh, so here's an example of a 67-year-old patient who, um, as you can see, the arrow is pointing to a lesion in her left kidney. This is a patient who already underwent uh, cystectomy and illoconduiting about 2012 and was found with a filling defect in her really only good kidney, the left kidney. So <clears throat> this is clearly a patient that's not a candidate for nephroduterectomy. And this is one we would treat uh, endoscopically. So this is a video from her resection. Um, she required uh, percutaneous resection. So we've already got access into the kidney, dilated the tract, 
And uh, we use uh, piranha forceps preferentially to do our resection. It requires a lot of patience, but I think this gives you very good control um, and allows you not to distort the uh, underlying architecture so that if there's a single stalk to this tumor, it's much easier to see once you debulk the tumor. Uh, we do use a resect scope um, sparingly. Uh, if, we need to, if it's a very large tumor, then we need to just debulk the, uh, the surface of the, of the tumor to get to the, uh, to the base of it. And uh, after we do the resection, you can see it's a very clear view. Um, we do additional biopsies um, uh, if needed uh, of the uh, base of the tumor, um, but it really gives us very good control. We have excellent hemostasis. And at this point, we determine whether or not to um, come back for a second look if we didn't feel like we got a good, thorough look at, at the entire collecting system with the flexible scope after the resection. Uh, uh, often we'll come back for a second look and uh, look around again and then re-biopsy the resection uh, beds that we, uh, that we created on the, on the initial look. Um, once that's clear and done, then we put in the nephrostomy tube, which is our preferred method of initial adjuvant treatment uh, in these patients. Uh, so in our early in our series, we used uh, BCG as a standard, but ultimately our data revealed that there really was no benefit to BCG except for carcinoma in situ. Then we switched to mitomycin, and the data currently is suggesting on our analysis that really mitomycin, as we instill it, uh, we usually instill uh, standard bladder protocol once a week for six weeks total uh, through the nephrostomy tube. And uh, once the installation is completed, uh, we uh, then remove the nephrostomy tube and do a look in about six weeks later. Um, our mitomycin data was not showing any benefit, just like the BCG, and currently we're switching to gemcitabine and taxotere, which we had originally reserved for patients who failed mitomycin, uh, but that's becoming our primary treatment modality at present. Uh, our uh, technique has evolved over the years. We used to admit these patients to the hospital. Certainly when I was a fellow, we used to admit these patients to the hospital every week for their installation, monitor kidney pressures and so on. But uh, these days it's done as an outpatient in the office and um, no deleterious effects uh, so far. Uh, the question often comes up about uh, whether or not the nephrostomy tube is the best um, method for instilling uh, the adjuvant treatments. Uh, certainly Dr. Gupta and his group published in uh, 2013 uh, an ex vivo pig model which showed that uh, ureterocatheter really um, was the best method of delivering an agent uh, to, uh, to see um, much more diffuse staining of the collective system from top to bottom. And this was uh, supported by an in vivo uh, porcine model, which again showed the retrograde uh, installation through ureterocatheter was really the best method superior to both uh, reflux through a double J stent or integrate through a nephrostomy tube. Uh, so, um, there's, the method of installation is important. Uh, the question also uh, arises based on this uh, study um, that was presented at the AUA in 2019 uh, using a gel form of mitomycin, uh, which allows it to stay in the kidney longer, lasts about uh, four to six hours in the collectant system, and uh, this allows much more thorough contact with the collectant system. Uh, so they presented on 71 patients, 48% uh, of those were deemed unresectable, 
and they saw a complete response in as many as 60% of the patients six weeks after the last installation. And uh, it was on the strength of this data that the FDA approved this uh, treatment for um, low-grade biopsy-proven upper tract urothelial cancer. And uh, this was a recent approval. Uh, while that sounds exciting and it's interesting, uh, other uh, groups have looked into other methods of delivering uh, drugs into the collectin into the collectin system. So, uh, Dr. Leatsikos from Greece, uh, in his lab, uh, used the pig model and uh, and a drug eluting balloon uh, impregnated with paclitaxel. And uh, what they found was, uh, if you look on the right of the screen, the longer the balloon is in contact with the urethelium, the better penetration you get uh, of the drug. Uh, likewise, uh, another group published on a drug-eluting stent, which was impregnated, impregnated with different chemotherapy agents that we're all very familiar with. And uh, again, they showed uh, 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 within 72 hours, 100% of the uh, drug had been released uh, into the tissue and through the surrounding tissue. Uh, the stent dissolved after about 90 days. And uh, more importantly, and just as important really, is that those anti-tumor effect on cancer cells and those minimal cytotoxic effect on normal cells. Now, this was an artificial urine model. Uh, so our protocol for long-term follow-up uh, really is ureteroscopy every three months for the first year, then every six months for two years, and then yearly thereafter, with periodic imaging about every two years. So the question then arises, uh, should uh, endoscopic management be extended to a broader group of patients with resectable disease? Uh, so a typical patient that would uh, um, cause a lot of headache is a patient who's you know, older patients with uh, significant uh, cardiac comorbidities, uh, GFR that does not allow you to perform an effort uterectomy, uh, decreased performance status, multifocal, uh, urothelial cancer in the collectants in the upper tract. And uh, some areas may be difficult to reach with the uroscope and laser. And uh, you were able to do a biopsy in this patient or they were referred to you with a biopsy, which was a very small sample, low grade, but you know, you were still kind of suspicious. So in this kind of patient, uh, chronic kidney disease is absolutely important. Uh, is the disease respectable? And what is the uh, the stage of the disease. And uh, there's always concerns about tract seeding as with uroscopic resection. With Perkstein's resection, there's always that concern as well. And we'll touch on that a little bit later in the talk. Uh, certainly in this kind of patient, adjuvant treatments need to be considered. And uh, just as important, and actually probably more important, is that the patients uh, have to be compliant with follow-up. So uh, talking about chronic kidney disease, uh, this is something that we really don't emphasize as much as I think we need to. Uh, if you look at uh, life expectancy for a 55-year-old man, this is a 55-year-old man on dialysis, um, life expectancy is five years compared to 25 years for the general population. Significant difference. Another way to look at it is at five years, only 33% of these patients are alive, and at 10 years, only 10% of them are alive. So it's really important to try and preserve the kidney as much as we can in these patients. And there's other data, other data to show that um, death from other causes uh, 
is much more prevalent uh, in these patients uh, with that chronic kidney disease, regardless of the modality of the treatment with either transplant or with uh, dialysis. So as we know, the gold standard uh, treatment is radical nephroureurectomy. Um, Dr. Motomedina has talked about that. I'm not gonna dwell on that. We did look at our data. Uh, this is a 30 year retrospective review that we published on really the largest case series uh, of any institution in the world. Uh, we have now well over 300 patients, but at the time we did this analysis, uh, what we had shown uh, and part of the data uh, Dr. Motomedina presented is that endoscopic management really allowed you to preserve 87 of 87% of the patients, uh, sorry, 87% of the kidneys in these patients. And uh, ultimately endoscopic, manage endoscopic management did not compromise their survival. And their overall survival was really uh, driven by advanced age and comorbidities and the presence of bladder cancer. And uh, multifocality really was not a contraindication uh, in, this, uh, in this group of patients. Uh, so, um, the, um, the questions that arise always is really, you know, things that we really need to think about in terms of the future is, you know, do we need six weeks? Do we need more than six weeks of uh, adjuvant installations? And should we consider maintenance regimens for these patients? And uh, the, based on the data that we have currently, um, Retrograde installation with the ureter catheter seems to be the best method uh, for delivering the uh, adjuvant treatments in these patients. And the question becomes really what is the best agent to give in these patients? BCG has its role in carcinoma in situ. Mitomycin appears to be much more effective in the gel form. What about gemcitabine, taxotere, and, uh, and all these other agents that are available for this disease? Uh, those are really the uh, uh, the directions of study that we need to focus on in the coming years. Um, the issue of track seizing, uh, we only saw one in our series. This is a patient who already had uh, needle biopsy and then a nephrostomy tube uh, placed before he presented to our institution. Uh, we did the resection. He had local, um, sorry, he had uh, track seeding, which uh, was excised and he received radiotherapy. And at his last follow-up, um, now more than two years, uh, he's had no recurrence. Uh, there was one case report in the literature, which uh, again had somewhat similar circumstances. This is a patient who uh, has had multiple recurrences in the ureter and the bladder and in the kidney, uh, managed endoscopically. Uh, ultimately, he presented at another, another institution with obstruction. Uh, if you remember, Dr. Motomedina mentioned that obstruction uh, by itself is a poor prognostic indicator, um, no indicator of uh, poor outcomes. Uh, so that this patient had a nephrostomy to place, presented back to his primary institution, underwent an incomplete resection, uh, and actually had to be aborted because of anesthetic concerns. Uh, developed, developed seeding in this tract, which was treated with radiation much like our patient was. Uh, but this patient ultimately died from metastatic disease. So this was not a, uh, you know, really this was a very poor acting uh, tumor uh, in this patient. So tract seeding is ex exceedingly rare and in fact is much more common in partial cystectomy and laparoscopy uh, series, much more so than endoscopic uh, treatment. As I mentioned, that was the only other case report other than ours uh, that I've seen in the literature. 
Uh, we did do a subgroup analysis of uh, 14 patients with solitary kidneys uh, from our series. Uh, half of these patients underwent percutaneous resection. The other seven underwent uh, nephroureterectomy and was, were placed on dialysis. Um, the patients who were uh, treated with percutaneous resection had much longer survival compared to the patients uh, who underwent uh, immediate nephroureterectomy. And again, that's borne out by the uh, that's supported by the data on chronic kidney disease. So uh, Dr. Motamidine has talked about risk stratification in his portion of the talk, and ultimately this is very important in selecting how you manage these patients and which patients to really pay more attention to and perhaps be more aggressive in terms of surveillance and uh, adjuvant treatments. And, uh, and even thinking about um, maintenance uh, treatment for some of these patients. Uh, so uh, patients need to understand that if they choose the endoscopic route or for patients that are forced to continue on the, with the endoscopic route, really lifelong surveillance is really uh, the key for them. That's what um, is going to help to really control their disease. Uh, ultimately, uh, we need to accrue um, large numbers, and this can only be done effectively through multicenter studies, which of course, we're involved in, and many other institutions are involved in. Uh, so uh, with that, I think um, that comes concludes the uh, talk. I hope uh, I was able to highlight really the important key elements uh, for endosco endoscopic management for these patients. Uh, tremendous thanks to uh, all of my collaborators. As you can see, it takes a lot of uh, teamwork uh, to make something like this happen. And uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, happy to take any questions. Uh, thanks so much, Dr. Kiki, uh, Dr. Motamedinia. That was a really great talk, great review. This is a high yield topic for boards and in-service. It comes up all the time on every single uh, one of these tests. So knowing how you stage and treat um, is super important for all the residents and students tuned in. Um, if anyone has any questions, they can submit them through the chat um, while we talk for the next few minutes. Um, I did have one question about um, endoscopic resection, percutaneous resection. What, what precautions do both of you take when you're actually doing the resection? My concern when I've done these is you don't want to resect too deep because you run the risk of heavy bleeding, but you also don't want to do too shallow of a resection. Um, and not get the appropriate amount of tissue or leave tumor behind. So, how do you how do you reconcile that? Okay, um, I can I can I can respond to that. So the important thing in terms of uh, resection, uh, uh, first of all, choosing your access is absolutely critical. Uh, going through the right calyx, and that's the benefit of the endoscopic uh, guidance with the ureteroscope, which allows you to park the scope right where you want it. You watch your needle come in and it's a single puncture, single dilation. Once you have your tract in there, the, tra um, the sheath does not move. You keep the sheath completely um, in there and don't let it slip into the retroperitoneum or out of the kidney. So this gives you outflow. So no matter what, the urine and the fluid is draining out, out through the sheath. Now, I mentioned uh, during the talk that I like the cold cup biopsy forceps. And that's important, it's a controlled resection, it's boring, it's tedious, but it really gives you the best control. And as you go piecemeal, you can cauterize as needed with the loop. And once you get to the base of the tumor, you really have a clear view 
and uh, a very good idea of the extent of the base of the tumor. And at that point, you can decide how deep you can go safely uh, once you've reached the base of the tumor. And I, I think that's really the advantage uh, of the cold cut biopsy forceps, which is something I learned from Dr. Smith. And that's a method he uses, uses used. And uh, that's the method I picked up from him and Peru's does the same thing as well. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, when you do end up opting for nephrouretorectomy, what do each of you do to, uh, how, do how do each of you handle the bladder cuff? Uh, so the, um, I learned of all of my uh, laparoscopy from uh, Dr. Kavusi, so that I take the bladder cuff laparoscopically. I don't do an endoscopic unroofing. I dissect all the way down. And just when you think you're at the bladder cuff, you need to go even deeper because, you know, ultimately it's much, you know, it, it can be, you can be deceived by the tension on the ureter and you think you're at the right place. So you need to go a lot deeper. And I usually come across it with a TIA stapler once, I'm, once I confirm that I'm at the right place. Um, if I don't think I've gone deep enough, I'll go even further. And if I need to open the bladder to really at that point, um, you know, get a good cuff and margin, then I would do that and sew the bladder. Uh, the one thing that's important to note, and this is uh, something that comes from uh, Dr. Olson, when he was uh, chairman at Columbia, when I was his resident, uh, we usually put in mitomycin into the bladder uh, in these patients. And as we uh, take the kidney and then dissect the ureter, just before we uh, open up the bladder, uh, sorry, open the bladder, yes, we drain the bladder from the mitomycin, irrigate the rest of the mitomycin out, and then take the cuff at that point. So I still do the same thing laparoscopically and um, I think it, it helps and uh, deals with the concern about uh, teething and tumor recurrence, uh, which is often you know, a nightmare when it does occur. That's great. Thanks so much. Uh, Dr. Kreiderman asked, what is the role for distal ureterectomy for a distal ureteral tumor? And is there any data about upper tract recurrence after these types of procedures? Um, so uh, I don't often do distal ureterectomies. I mean, those are very few and far between. Uh, but, uh, you know, the limited data that we have, really the grade of the tumor and, uh, and really the stage, really what the T stage of the tumor is, really is what drives the recurrence in these patients. Um, I'll give you an example. There's a patient who um, uh, had history of uh, radiation for unrelated uh, disease in the pelvis. Um, had uh, a tumor in the distal ureter, uh, endoscopically resected. Um, ultimately, recurrent tumor was seen on uh, another surveillance. I opted to do a distal ureterectomy, which um, went very well. We celebrated, and after really about two years, um, then uh, he uh, developed metastatic disease. Uh, so this is uh, you know, an example of, and he was high grade from the very beginning. So it was not surprising, but uh, these patients can be very difficult to manage. And uh, the grade of the disease really is what drives uh, the uh, recurrence. Um, I think that's a perfect follow-up question. Dr. Aljafar asked, what is your approach for a patient who underwent a distal ureterectomy and had a positive margin with high grade disease and that patient has CKD? 
Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, that's a very, that's tough, a very one. tough one. And I think, yes. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, you will not be faulted for managing this one way or the other. Uh, ultimately, you know, the fact that they have a positive margin, um, you know, the, the question is how good was your reception or was there, you know, tumor that sort of skipped, you know, segment that you didn't recognize, meaning you had a negative margin uh, confirmed by your pathologist at the time of resection. You did your anastomosis only to come and find out later that those more disease proximal to this. Uh, really, the importance is really endoscopic assessment is really important before you go for these surgeries uh, to make sure there's nothing else visually that you can see that you need to take into consideration. Now, this may have been a patient that you may need to do a total ureterectomy on and do an illness position. Um, or perhaps if the lesions were small enough, you could ablate those endoscopically uh, before you uh, proceed with the distal ureterectomy. So again, this is a difficult case that, uh, again, it would be hard to fault you for going one way or the other with this. Um, Dr. Jeremy asked, do you offer neoadjuvant chemotherapy for any of these patients? Uh, so this is an um, emerging concept. I didn't touch on it in the talk. Uh, there's, um, there's been two trials. Uh, there's one trial that showed that adjuvant uh, chemotherapy, gemcitabine, gemcitabine and cisplatinum, um, did make a difference uh, in these patients after resection, and uh, the, the follow-up trial was uh, the role of neoadjuvant, uh, which just recently published. I believe there were, uh, there were to present at the AUA this year, which uh, again showed benefit for neoadjuvant treatment uh, in this group of patients. Uh, but it's not standard practice uh, as of yet. Uh, the difficulty and the challenge is convincing our um, oncologists uh, that uh, they should, number one, give adjuvant treatment uh, in their mind and based on the current literature uh, up until recently uh, was that, well, there's no evidence of disease. It was a complete resection. Um, your surveillance shows there's nothing else left over, so let's just watch the patient. And that tends to be their approach. But now with the emerging data, I think we can make a much more, uh, much stronger argument uh, for both adjuvant and neoadjuvant treatment uh, in these patients. Absolutely. Uh, well, I think that's the last question for now. So I just want to uh, thank you both, uh, Dr. Motobedinia and Dr. Okiki. Uh, I posted Dr. 